That's a pretty serious word, a pretty serious rebuke. And so I'm going to lighten things up a little bit, tell you a little story that's half joke, half story. A rabbi and a priest were playing golf one day, and the rabbi noticed that before every putt, the priest would cross himself. I don't know how to do that because I'm, I'm a Protestant, sorry. But um, anyway, at the turn, right, after the first nine holes, the priest was putting, put, putting, <laughs> putting like a master's champion and several strokes ahead of his friend, the rabbi. So the rabbi turns to the priest and he asks a bit sheepishly if the priest thinks it would be all right if he, a Jewish rabbi, would cross himself before he putts. Sure, rabbi, go ahead, the priest says. But it won't do you any good until you learn how to putt. So the moral of the story is, it's all about self-reliance. Self-reliance. Don't bother to pray for God's help. Just learn how to putt. Learn how to do it yourself. And friends, we have a long history with self-reliance, not just in this nation, but in the human race, don't we? Self-reliance is mythical in its importance to Americans. And it was 1830 when Ralph Waldo Emerson, a famous American poet, wrote an essay called self-reliance, really glorifying the thing. He said in that essay, rather than relying on anything external, even God, we ought to depend on ourselves and the divinity that resides in us. In other words, he's really elevating the human spirit, humanism, if you will, to the place of a deity. Rely on who you are and what you're capable of. That statement reflects and and perhaps even helped to create the great American value of self-reliance. What Emerson wanted to encourage in people was the mindset that and the ability that they could take care of themselves. They could you can do anything. And that mindset has permeated our culture over the years. The truth is that for most people here in America, especially here in America, but I think in other parts of the world as well, the Holy Trinity has really been diverted and become the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. But again, this is not a brand new problem. It's not a new problem for us as modern Americans It's not a new problem at all, really, on the stage of human history. In fact, it's a problem that Jeremiah was quite familiar with 2,700 years ago. And it's the same essential problem that that he began confronting as soon as his calling as a prophet was realized and activated as a young man, even perhaps as a teenager. Imagine a teenager called to be a prophet, filled with the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit, and beginning to confront the culture around him regarding its idolatry. As soon as he began to speak on God's behalf, Jeremiah began to call people to recognize 
who the real God really is. In fact, as we dig into Jeremiah 2 this morning, I want to begin really by drawing your attention to an image that Jeremiah gives us that that I think pretty powerfully depicts the problem of idolatry in people's lives. Look with me at Jeremiah 2, 13. About in the middle of the reading from this morning, Jeremiah says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So here's the first takeaway I want to put before you this morning. Here's the essence of what Jeremiah is saying in in that verse. How do you think about God? How do you picture God? What image comes to mind? For Jeremiah, it's this. God is like a spring of living water that never runs dry. A spring of living water that never runs dry. There's a picture on the screen behind me this morning that you'll see throughout this message behind the notes. And uh, I I want you to think about this as a, a representation of this image that Jeremiah gives us. In fact, some of you may have actually been to this place. Anybody recognize it? It's in the upper peninsula of Michigan, our dear, pure Michigan. And uh, it's a place called Kitchitakippi, or the Big Spring. And uh, it's an amazing place. Uh, I'm sure thousands of people managed to find their way there, even though it's quite remote in the upper peninsula. And this spring is actually Michigan's largest natural spring. It's uh, about 45 feet deep. But what's even more significant is there's a continual flow of water into this spring, get this, of 10,000 gallons a minute. Think about that. 10,000 gallons of water every minute bubble up from the earth into this spring, through this spring. Nobody knows where this enormous amount of water actually comes from. As it bubbles up into the spring's pool bowl, the water then moves through an aquifer, an underground stream, into nearby Indian Lake, and then from there, it finds its way eventually into nearby Lake Michigan. 10,000 gallons a minute of water. Let me show you just for fun, not that this is, you know, meant to become like a a little tourist thing, but let me show you a video that represents how cool this spring is. And I want you to think of this and, and imagine this as a picture of God, okay? Check it out. You know, the dictionary defines the word attraction as something interesting or enjoyable that people want to see, visit, or do. I call that Michigan. I'm Tom Dalton from the Emmy Award-winning PBS television program, Under the Radar Michigan, and uh, I think you'll find this attraction pretty darn attractive. 
You know, in Florida, they got a natural spring called Wiki-Wachi. That's pretty cool. But up in Michigan's UP, we've got a spring with an even cooler name. It's called Kitchen to Kippy. <laughs> pretty cool. The Kitchen to Kippy Spring is located just a few miles west of Manistique in the Palms Book State Park. And when it comes to Michigan's natural wonders, I wonder why it took me so long to visit this one. The spring is a surreal experience that will totally amaze you. And the best part is, you just hop onto a self-propelled open-bottom ferry, crank yourself out to the middle, and watch the wonders of the spring. And lucky for me, Park Officer Pat Nelson came along to make sure I actually learned something. Pat, the first thing i got to ask you is, how does the water stay so clear? Well, you have 10,000 gallons a minute that comes up through the bottom. Uh, and that's crystal clear water, and that's constant movement. And that's why you get the rolling sand on the bottom. Well, the water is so crystal clear, it looks like we're just floating in the air over these fish. How far down to the bottom? It's 45 feet deep. 45 feet. The fish are huge. What are those? The really large ones are lake trout. Um, you can see there's lots of little ones on the bottom. Those are food. Those are food, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so in these trout, we will feed, too, in the morning. We throw some feed in there. So what's the temperature of the water? 45 degrees, consistently. Year-round? Year Year-round. This will not freeze over. Although I have been out here once where there was a little crust of ice over the top, but it will, it will not freeze okay. over a solid. Where did the name Kitchetakippi come from? Is there a legend in that, or is there a... Well, John Belair, who was a CNE lumberman, uh, he bought a five-and-dime in... Manistique in the turn of the century, he was the one who really fell in love with this area. He made arrangements through the Palm and Book Lumber Company. That's where the name Palm Book Park comes from. I was going to ask you because there's no palm trees here. No, no palm trees, but it was Palm Book Lumber Company. He made arrangements for a sale for the park for $10 for the original 90 acres. And he loved showing people the spring, wanted to attract people out here. He later confessed to one of the park managers when he was in his late 70s that it was, he had a, a poet friend of sorts who created the Kitsitakippi legend. It was supposedly a, a young Indian chief who was trying to prove his love to his maiden and she demanded that she catch him from one of the boughs and he fell into the water and drowned. So. But that's not true? Um, oh. yeah. Well, it sounds it cool. Be. I don't know, that's a heck of a way to go. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm not going in there. What do you think this spring and this park means to the, the state of Michigan? I think everybody takes something a little special away with them when they come out here. Yeah, I was, I knew it would be cool, but I had no idea it would be this. It's just awesome. That Look, look at that one fish is just sitting on the bottom. Is he just tired? Just hanging out. Just hanging. Hey, dude, what's happening? The Kitchen to Kippy Spring is the kind of place that's so cool the second you get home, you tell everybody you know about it. So don't worry if you can't say it right. Just make sure you get up here to see it. It's a real UP treasure. The second you get home, did you hear that? You tell everybody you know about it. Let me tell you something else that wasn't highlighted in the video, but that I think is absolutely fascinating about this particular place in the Upper Peninsula. The Indians who first discovered it had a nickname for this place. You know what they called it? This is not, you know, in their language, but what they referred to it as is the mirror of heaven. The mirror of heaven. And I love that because 
it, it takes us right back to Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 2.13. God is like a spring of living water that never runs dry. Imagine 10,000 gallons a minute of God's presence flowing into your life. How's that sound? Friends, if you, if you ever get up there, remember this image. Remember this picture, this metaphor that Jeremiah gives us. And think about what it means as you're enthralled by the spring. Think about the character of God, the heart of God, the life of God that's represented in this image. Jesus himself picked up on this idea. Maybe some of you remember these words from John chapter 7, 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the feast, the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So you see, when you put together Jeremiah 2.13 with John 7.38, the picture becomes as clear as the waters of Kitchitakippi. God wants to be the source of life to us. Our life in the Spirit, our provider, our living water. He longs for His Spirit to become our go-to source in times of trouble. He welcomes us to learn to live in faithful dependence on His goodness and His provision. So imagine 10,000 gallons a minute of God's presence flowing in and through your life. That's the heart of God for you and I. That's the heart of God for His people down through human history. And His heart for the people of Jerusalem and Judah at the time of Jeremiah, 2,700 years ago, was the same as his heart for us here and now. It's never changed. That's the heart of God. God longs for people to see him and know him as he really is in all of his goodness, in all of his glory. So the first sin then that Jeremiah confronted under the Lord's direction was the sin of forsaking God, turning away. God's here and the people turned and walked away from him. They turned away from God as the source and provider of abundant life. What Jeremiah was called to confront was the painful reality that, that God's people had failed for generations to look to him, trust him, and love him as he'd invited them to. What started out as a beautiful covenant relationship between God and his people had deteriorated over time into something far less than what God really desired. And I submit to you that God's heart was broken over that loss. Now this takes us back to Jeremiah 2.13 again because Jeremiah mentions two sins. If the first one is failing to see God as he really is, what's the second? Well, there's a second sin that goes hand in hand with the first one of forsaking God. His people turned away from him, the true source of abundant life, 
and they turned instead toward other gods of their own making, idols. And idols, let me remind you, are formed by human hands. So this is the sin, as Jeremiah refers to it, of digging broken cisterns. This brings us to a second insight I'd put before you this morning. People, and I, I don't think this has ever changed, honestly, in 2,700 plus years of history, we could even take it back further than the time of Jeremiah, people are prone to digging broken cisterns instead of trusting in God. That's the essential human problem, isn't it? People are prone to digging broken cisterns instead of trusting in God, the spring and fountain of eternal living water. For the Israelites, this symbolic image of digging broken cisterns really amounts to a word of of judgment against their idolatry. Here, let me refresh your memory regarding what we touched on at the end of Jeremiah 1 last Sunday. The basic message of Jeremiah was a word of warning. And we're going to see this again over the weeks to come. That God's judgment was at hand unless his people would repent of their idolatry. In fact, in many cases, God's even saying through Jeremiah, it's too late. You had a chance to repent. You didn't. Now, destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. Remember the words of Jeremiah 1, 14 to 16. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. And that, by the way, historically, is a reference to the Babylonians. The Babylonian Empire was on the verge of overthrowing the nation of Judah. Jeremiah continues, Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. And this indictment then is repeated, of course, in the earlier verses of Jeremiah 2 as well. And really throughout the book of Jeremiah, we'll see this again and again. Here are a couple quick examples from uh, Jeremiah 2 in particular. Jeremiah 2.5, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Jeremiah 2.8, the priest did not ask, where's the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Jeremiah 2, 11 and 12, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're no gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. Now, we might think to ourselves as modern men and women, you know, was it really all that bad? Like, why is God so upset about this? Maybe it was just a case of mistaken identity and, you know, they, like their intentions were good. They were trying to worship a God. Really, aren't, you know, aren't all gods the same? I mean, have you ever heard this before? 
right? Well, whatever works for you. If you feel it's right, if you feel it's good for you, then it must be okay. No. This was bad. This was completely forsaking the one true living God for something far less. Let me tell you a little something about the worship of Baal, Baal, as most Americans tend to say it. I don't know if you're familiar with, with this kind of idolatrous worship, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. It's not really a pretty thing to think about or talk about, but it was, it was pretty ugly. It was, it was pretty profane. Let me share with you a brief description from one of my favorite historians and Bible teachers named Ray Vanderlaan, who actually uh, teaches at Holland Christian High School over in Holland. Here's what he writes on his website called That the World May Know about the problem of the worship of Baal. He says, When the Israelites entered Canaan, they found a land of farmers, not shepherds, as they had been in the wilderness. The land was fertile beyond anything the Hebrew nomads had ever seen. And the Canaanites attributed this fertility to their god, Baal. And that is where the Israelites' problems began. Could the God who led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness also provide fertile farms in the promised land? Or would the fertility God of Canaan have to be honored? Maybe, they thought, to be safe, we should worship both, Yahweh and Baal. Thus, an intense battle began for the minds and hearts of God's people. The book of Judges records this ongoing struggle. The Israelites' attraction to and worship of the Canaanite gods, God's disciplinary response, the people's repentance, and God's merciful forgiveness until the next time that they reached for Baal again. By the time of Ahab and Jezebel, the fertility cults appeared to have the official sanction of Israel's leaders. Ahab, with his wife's encouragement, built a temple to Baal at his capital, Samaria. All the while, prophets like Elijah, Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah thundered that Yahweh alone deserved the people's allegiance. It took, at last, the Assyrian destruction of Israel and the Babylonian captivity for Judah to convict the Israelites that there is only one omnipotent God. Baal is portrayed as a man with the head and horns of a bull. His right hand is raised, and he holds in it a lightning bolt, signifying both destruction and fertility. Baal's worshipers appeased him by offering sacrifices, usually animals such as sheep or bulls. But at times of crisis, Baal's followers even sacrificed their own children. Apparently, the firstborn of the community in order to gain personal prosperity. In fact, God specifically appointed the tribe of Levi as the special servants, his special servants, in place of the firstborn of the Israelites so that they had no excuse for offering their own children as sacrifices. Baal and his mistress, Asherah, were also worshipped through ritual sex. Their pagan worshipers 
uh, worshipers practiced what's called sympathetic magic. That is, they believed that they could influence the gods' actions by performing the behavior that they wished the gods to demonstrate. So believing that the sexual union of Baal and Asherah produced fertility in their fields, the worshipers would engage in, in immoral sex with one another to cause the gods to come together in their favor, thus ensuring good harvests. In this way, God's incredible gift of sexuality was perverted to the most obscene forms of public ritualized prostitution. So friends, let me summarize what Ray Vanderlaan is saying, and let me put it to you this way. Think of a religion that worships an image of a half-man, half-bull, and that compels its worshipers to sacrifice their own children and to purposefully and proactively engage in sexual immorality. That's the essence of Baal worship in a nutshell. Not a pretty thing. Heartbreaking, in fact. Heartbreaking to the Lord. And make no mistake about it, the ancient practice of Baal worship was inspired, fueled, and empowered by demonic forces. Can I say that? Let's be honest, right? We have an adversary who wants people not to worship the one true living God. He wants to distract them. He wants to mislead them. He wants to deceive people into worshiping false gods. So this wasn't some innocent mistake about the identity of God. This was an impure, unholy, false religion to the very core. And this is, this is a picture of the brokenness of humanity. That people would do things like this is representative of the human condition. So then, this is, this is what God and, and Jeremiah had in mind as the equivalent of digging a broken cistern. Here you've got a spring of living water like Kichitakippi, and instead you think to yourself, I'm going to dig a little hole in the ground where I can collect my own water. And you try and you try and you try, but you can do no better than to dig a broken cistern. You know what the problem with a broken cistern is? It's broken. <laughs> it doesn't hold water. It, it doesn't work. Like a cistern is a, it's an underground, you know, like uh, not a hole, but it's a, it's a cavern that's created uh, to, to hold water. It's a, like a storage place for water. And they would collect it from, you know, rain, uh, rainwater runoff or whatever. It was a way that humans devised in ancient society to collect and store water. So what Jeremiah is saying is, you turn away from the, the spring of living water and you try to replace it by digging your own broken hole in the ground that can't hold a thing. Why would you do that? That's craziness. But that's, that's what idolatry is. There's no life in it. Now, let me move on here because aside from offering us a helpful lesson in ancient Jewish, you know, idolatry and uh, religious practices of the, the pagans like the Canaanites, what does this have to say to us? 
I mean, I could go on and on and on with all the, the history and the background, but really what I want you to think about here with me as we kind of turn the corner is how this idea applies to us. Here's the bottom line. The true source of the profound brokenness in people's lives is our willingness to make anything but Jesus the Lord and Master of our lives. This is about brokenness. A broken cistern doesn't work because it's broken. Let me tell you something interesting, something else interesting about Baal that, that does apply across the years of history, even though most of us would not you know, like readily identify ourselves as worshipers of Baal. Do you know what the name literally means, Baal? It literally means Lord and Master. And I think in that sense that you could take the name Baal and you could really say that an idol in our lives is anything that takes the role of Lord and Master in our lives. Anything that replaces Jesus Christ. Not the least of which, as I mentioned earlier, is the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Now, what I want you to understand in all of this is that, yes, God was angry. God was disappointed. God was judging his people, and you might say rather harshly. But what's behind and beneath it all is a broken heart, a heart full of love for his people. And you see, there are hints of this, even in the passage we've read today. Look with me back at Jeremiah 2.2 and, and look at the image that God uses to describe the longing in his heart for the way it used to be. Jeremiah 2.2, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Think of the heart behind those words. What's God saying? Those words represent a God who remembers and longs for the day when things were different, better. They represent a God whose heart is broken by the unfaithfulness and infidelity of his people. Think of the first and second commandments of the Mosaic Law in the context of a, a, loving, a loving covenant relationship like, like marriage, right? And you'll see again the heart of God in all of this. Exodus 20, 1-4, God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does God want? Love. What does God have to give? Love. Why is God jealous? Love. And this is a holy jealousy, not unholy, right? He's jealous because he loves people so much 
that it breaks his heart when they're idolatrous. He longs for a people that are wholly devoted to loving him. And anything less than that breaks his heart. Anything less, any form of idolatry is essentially spiritual adultery. It's giving our love to another. And this is why throughout Scripture, as in Jeremiah 2.2, the covenant relationship between God and his people is often described and referred to as like a marriage between husband and wife. Right? The church is the bride of Christ, as Paul says. So the one true living God, the creator of heaven and earth, is after hearts and minds that are wholly devoted to loving him. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. And that's precisely why he went so far as to send Jesus to live among us and to die for us. Let me just pause here for a brief summary of the essence of the gospel message. If you're at square one or before square one and you're not sure where to start in relationship to God, listen to this. 1 John 4, 9 to 12. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So if you're here this morning and you feel like you're on the outside looking in, not outside the walls, but sort of outside the life and love of the church and of relationship with God, let me invite you to step in. Step over the threshold and open your life to a personal relationship with the living, loving God of the universe. He's inviting you into a love relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. Jesus loved you so much that he gave up his own life to save your life so that you can be reconciled to God. Anything less than that kind of love relationship with God that I'm describing, anything less is merely a broken cracked cistern. It doesn't work. It holds no water. It holds no life. And frankly, the brokenness of life apart from God is evidenced all around us. Have you noticed? It's front page news every day. Somebody else committed suicide. Somebody else killed someone. Most people may not know what a cistern is, but everybody knows what brokenness is because it's touched our lives. But here's some good news about brokenness. When you begin to find yourself in a place of brokenness and you're able to actually admit it, you're one step closer to God. To find yourself at the end of yourself is not a bad place to be. 
Because then you begin to look around and ask, is there somebody out there that can really help me? Frankly, the brokenness of life apart from God is, is evidenced all around us. But it has to come, it has to become real to each one of us personally for us to begin this journey of faith and life. Self-reliance and the brokenness that it produces also reach inside the church too, don't they? So while it's evident all around us in the world, it's also evident sometimes right here within the walls of the church and within our own lives. Let me tell you a story about a a young woman named Pam as, as I wind things down here and try to wrap this up. Pam reflects in this account on her own brokenness. Here's a woman who claims to be a follower of Christ, a believer, a Christian, and yet she came to the realization that she had not been trusting God and loving God the way that he desired. Here's what she writes. My life wouldn't look broken to an outsider. I was raised in a strong Christian home, accepted Jesus at an early age, and was a fairly happy, good kid, well-adjusted young adult. I don't even think, I, I didn't even think that my life was broken myself. But the cracks had started to form as soon as I got old enough to learn about being responsible. I was taught that if I saved my money, planned ahead, and did everything right, both morally and ethically, then things would turn out okay, and I'd have a comfortable, trouble-free life. Looking back, I now realize that the times I thought I was being prudent, I was really being self-reliant. What I believed was a healthy respect for preparation was actually an addiction to the feeling of security. I wanted assurance that I would always have money in the bank, a roof over my head, and that things would always go as planned. I thought I trusted God, but it wasn't until my self-reliance and security were threatened that I was forced to put that trust to the test. When I got married, I knew my husband's dream was to open a food business similar to the one that his great-grandparents had owned for decades. Despite my misgivings about the financial insecurity of business ownership, I agreed, and we purchased a small neighborhood bakery. Our customers loved our products, but there weren't enough of them to keep income steady. In addition, we discovered that the previous owner had been taking shortcuts to get around various fees and taxes. By doing things right, as I'd been trained to do, we ended up paying those fees and taxes, which landed us in financial trouble. We also made some foolish decisions with the best of intentions, such as withdrawing retirement savings to keep paying our employees. When we no longer had enough money to pay our mortgage and I was forced to ask for help from our church, I realized that my security blanket was gone and I could not rely any longer on my own careful planning. After six years of greater and greater losses, we had to close the bakery and declare bankruptcy. The day the bank that held our house as collateral for our business loan delivered a notice of intent to foreclosure, I called a housing services agency, left a voicemail, and then I sobbed 
harder than I'd ever done in my life. It was the death of my security. I could no longer be self-reliant. I had nothing left except my foundation as a believer, which caused me to cry out to God for help. I was devastated, but I clung to the truth that God is faithful. And God heard my cry. He intervened to save us from the results of our own poor decisions. Through another mom from our church, he led us to a bankruptcy attorney with integrity and with affordable fees, which my in-laws were gracious enough to pay. We were able to keep the house and renegotiate our loan, and while we're still paying off our debts, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I'm confident that God will never leave us, and this confidence gives me hope in the darkness. God taught me many important lessons from this experience, mainly not to obsess over my own security. Every morning when my mind fills with to-dos, instead of rushing into my planning mode, I consciously give them to the Lord. This is your conversation, Lord. Please guide me in what to say. This is your project, Lord. Please lead me through the steps involved. This is your target run, Lord. Please keep me on task so that I don't end up with an overfull cart. With every this is your statement, I feel my load lighten and his peace washes over me. So here's the moral of Pam's story. Recognition of a broken life can lead us to a broken heart before God. And that's a beautiful place to be because that's when the presence and power of God is released to us. It's far better to come to God with a broken heart than to go on thinking that your cistern isn't really broken. And what little dirty water you find in it is good enough. The amazing thing is that God doesn't hold these sins against us as long as we recognize them and admit them, right? When we admit our brokenness, his forgiveness and grace are right there to meet us, to cover us. So let me, let me finish with this. What I'm really describing and inviting you into is a series of steps in relationship to God. Let me just be really clear about what they are. First, we have to get in touch with our own brokenness. We have to recognize it for what it is so that we can see our own desperate need for God, the spring of eternal water, living water. That's step one. Recognize your need for God and begin to seek him. Enter relationship with him. Learn to love him and trust him and depend on him. Even for those of us who would say we've known Christ and given our lives to Christ, as the story I just shared indicates, there are lots of opportunities along the journey for us to repent of our own self-reliance and idolatry. But then, there's a graduation that takes place, right? It's graduation season, it's open house season, 
In fact, I was hearing recently of how someone had to go to the graduation ceremony of their kindergartner. I was thinking, <laughs> do, they, do they wear robes and hats too? I don't know. It's amazing. Every grade, now there's a graduation. But actually, what I'm talking about here is that there is, in fact, a graduation in the Spirit. From being uh, broken yourself and recognizing your brokenness to beginning to see and respond to the brokenness of others. This is what Jeremiah was all about, right? This is a greater challenge. Step two is a step up into the heart of God. Step two is actually to invite God to put us in touch with the brokenness of others around us, the brokenness of the world around us, so that we have the compassion and love to lead people to the spring of living water where we've found life. To see and respond to the brokenness of others is to share the heart of God. It's to let the compassion and love of God fill us for the sake of others, for the blessing and benefit of others. So last week I closed with a short summary of really where we're headed together through this study of Jeremiah over the next couple of months. I said, over the summer months ahead of us, let me invite you to read Jeremiah with this request on your heart and mind. Lord, would you break our hearts with the things that break your heart? I hope you've been thinking about that, praying about that, genuinely inviting the Lord to do that. If we do, as we do, God will prepare us and empower us to touch the world around us in amazing ways. So this morning, I'm inviting you to be a noticer of brokenness. Notice it first and foremost in your own life and allow it to lead you back to God, to the spring of living water, the source of true and pure life. But then begin to notice it in the lives of others around you. Be a noticer of brokenness. Not a judge, a noticer. Begin to connect with people in their place of brokenness and empathize with them. Begin to allow the compassion and love of God to fill your heart as you witness the brokenness of others around you. Maybe you've been so preoccupied with keeping your own life together that you've never really allowed yourself to pay close attention to the brokenness of others. It's all around us. Look and listen closely and welcome the heart of God to begin to shape and characterize how you respond. Are you with me? Let's pray.